Today, I am joined by Matteo Briscoe. Matteo, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's good being here. So before these podcasts, I always talk with the guests, such as yourself, to decide where your knowledge is or what your passions are. And in planning for this episode, I've come to learn you are interested in very many things, and they're all extremely controversial. So I'm really excited to jump into this, and I don't see why we don't jump in on the deep end and start with systemic racism. So I want to know, first and foremost, how do you look at systemic racism? Because it seems today it's often defined as either something that is a perception of racism, let's say uh, a, a large sum of microaggressions throughout life that are because of a predominantly, let's say, white society. And then there's the de jure definition that it's laws and actual structures that are literally defined in ways that disadvantage minorities uh, or women and things like that. Um, I want to know your thoughts. Do you have any off-the-bat inclinations surrounding systemic racism today in this world and the legitimacy behind these claims? Yeah, so man it's a it's a big topic to start with extremely controversial um and also very identity based you know I, I think the hesitancy for people to talk about it is sometimes based on your identity and so identity is an extremely important part of, uh, of it just me you know for the uh people listening being white and a male just for context um but that aside you know i i think what you mentioned it has to do with both of those i think it's something that when people discuss it and discuss the truth of it um the proponents of that theory they discuss it yeah as being lived experience or they utilize something called storytelling so they give their experiences or they give the experiences of other people they know, mainly people of color, obviously, and the uh, racist experiences uh, that they get from other Americans, white Americans. And then you have the, you know, the big things like suggesting entire systems or forms of law are inherently racist and the the main evidences i've heard from that stem from historical context so it just makes sense right that if the united states declared its independence stated all men are equal but didn't follow that right for a few hundred years it would make sense right that our systems today are just riddled with racism so those are the bigger um arguments I hear, obviously there's specifics to it, but essentially historical context is key. And um, that translates into, yeah, the everyday life for a person of color. So let's start there with history. I always think about what the world looks like today and how we should, let's say, base our legislation, uh, how we should form affirmative action policy and things like that. But at the same time, uh, I get a lot of backlash for that, a lot of pushback, because I oftentimes fail to acknowledge uh, this history that uh, we may get into in more detail a little bit later about how 
we seem to whitewash history. You know, uh, the saying that the victor of the war writes the history book. Well, in, in America, the North won the war, but it was still mostly white soldiers and white male landowners and things like that. So there's this uh, pervasive idea that may hold some truth that our history doesn't tell the full history. So I, I want to know, in your eyes, how important is that history? Is there some calculus that has to be made between how important what's happening in the world today in reality, let's say legislatively, compared to what has happened in the past and how can we balance these two things if you think a balance is necessary? So, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, from my observations, you know, being a college student, still young, don't have a lot of wisdom on my back, but from what I understand, uh, just going through school, history is obviously extremely important. Um, not trying to say that it isn't uh, my favorite subjects in school were history. And I often thought the most interesting things about it were or was knowing that those people lived, they breathed, they thought just like us. And they had different ideologies at the time. They lived through certain time periods, traumas, difficulties, uh, anything and everything that we experience today. And that needs to be shared. That does. We need to find commonalities with those who lived during those times. And that's why I think, um, you know, obviously biographies, autobiographies of certain incredible individuals, Martin Luther King or so forth, are extremely important. But in terms of just general history, right, that is a complicated subject because different people are going to have different ideas of what history should be taught, right? So concerning, like even just concerning the civil rights movement, the civil war, the uh, Revolutionary War, like extremely important time periods for this country. They need to be taught correctly so that the children being raised in this country have nuance. And I think that's the most, uh, probably the most important thing is nuance. And so the way I see it, I don't wanna get too deep because I know we'll cover a lot of things later, but yes, the whitewashing to me that it really goes back and forth. You know, I I had my American edu education system abroad because I lived internationally, but I can safely say we covered a lot of really important figures, people of color or white people um, alike. And that was very eye-opening to me to, to be able to see people of color make such an important difference. So I think history, yeah, history warps and changes the minds of children growing up because it gives them nuance and it gives them the ability to relate um, modern society to societies before and it gives context in the sense that you can look at Thomas Jefferson for example incredible brilliant mind um, who also did some pretty terrible things, you know, and I think those need to be taught to give nuance those need to be taught to children to tell them that great people aren't always good people per se, but they do great things and that's what makes them stand out, right? And as them, as they're growing up, they can realize, hey, you know, I can do great things even if I am human in the end. The often proclaimed counter to systemic racism is a 
historical based approach to our legislation, as I said, our our education, things like that today. But from what you're saying, it sounds almost like you're not going that far. It sounds like you're painting more of a framework than a uh, a mechanism for enacting legislation. So, for example, if I'm hearing you right, and feel free to correct me if I'm not, it sounds like you're painting a picture that we need to acknowledge history for what it has led to and how it's led to, most importantly, like you bring up examples of, you know, potentially founding fathers being doing great things, but not always being the best people, let's say owning slaves or something like that, something more common, uh, given the time period. But are you also saying that we should be basing today's legislation, uh, we could just talk uh, the United States if you'd like, should we be basing our policy, whether at a Supreme Court federal level or even just at an institutional, uh, let's say, university level, should we be basing that on the history or we sh uh, should we be simply using history to base our framework, but in fact only change and create our legislation based on raw data in the world today? Yeah, so that's also tough and I feel pretty split on that honestly because when I look if if I were to look at it through a framework perspective right um just to to give us a little you know leapfrog into laws that we should put forth and and have it not really like personally impact it I think that I could somewhat agree with that approach because I mean let's be honest in this country we have our constitution, we have our, our constitutional beliefs and values that, I mean, we, we argue over all the time, right? But do we actually follow those like to the teeth, you know? Like, do we actually constitutionally do everything correctly like the founding fathers wanted us to do? I don't think we really do that. And corruption still exists. And systems still, in my opinion, do obviously have faults. There's no perfect system. And so I don't know if I believe in like a strong manning, you know, like complete comparison between history and now, because I don't think we're really 100% able as a society to implement that perfectly. But it doesn't mean that we can't create frameworks as we already have to help guide us. So in terms of systemic racism, looking at the past, looking at certain um, implications of things, how uh, uh, certain programs or, or other lines of values or thinking impacted populations, I think that's fair game. I think we need to look at that because we can always learn from the past, right? But I also don't believe that that's all we need to look at. And that's what we fully need to base everything off of. So like for the, the civil rights movement, for example, there's there's some general controversy sometimes in, in that the values that exited it, right, that were put forth by Martin Luther King and all of his supporters. And uh, I mean, decades of fighting, right? those laws that were put in place after uh, quote unquote colorblind laws many people have problems with and they don't agree that they live up to the foundations of this country and they don't agree 
that they should have been fully put in place. And um, I think there's some validity to that um, in that we need to recognize um, when certain laws don't fully apply and, and um, include everyone in them when they're not able to. So I, I guess I'm, I'm pretty back and forth on that. It's really hard to say, but yeah. And partly you're not the only one because we seem to have a, a lapse in our ability to define what the end goal is. Because if the end goal is to, on one hand, be colorblind and just all unify under something like patriotism towards the United States or something like that. I realize that's politicized uh, today, but something general not related to ethnicity, then that could be one end goal that would uh, require colorblindness. But on the other hand, if we want to embrace our group norms, which is becoming a, a more common practice with identity politics, as you alluded to uh, a moment ago, then there's this requisite for acknowledging differences, let's say differences in culture or differences in ways we express ourselves, differences in food, all of these um, spectrums you could divide on, which it worries me to some extent because not everyone is the MLK of the 21st century. There are many Malcolm X's and Malcolm X had his place, you know, uh, he had his place in the civil rights movement, uh, slightly more violent, you could just say to be simplistic. But it makes me wonder, not that I should compare Antifa to Malcolm X, but I hope you can see this, this leap I'm making this, this large leap, that now we're having publicized groups of potentially more violence. And we don't seem to know what the end game is, because if the end game is that we're all in fact the same, then this flies in the face of what is purportedly a new uh, progressive mindset of uh, not being simply colorblind. So I, I want to. I wonder what your thoughts are on on the value of fighting for what you believe in 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 this way. Again, as another um, white person such as myself, do you ever have the similar worry that? If we fight, let's say we as minorities plus allies, generally speaking, that if you fight too much or try to push back too violently or take advantage of, let's say, BLM protests for something like looting, that this could actually be regressive in some way because it ostracizes, let's say, generally the other half of the U.S. population that's a little bit more conservative and traditional. Yeah, so the way I would approach this is first discussing what I think is the biggest wall to the modern progressive movement. Um, and I would say that's the white moderate when you really think about it. I think obviously white people make up a good chunk of this country um, in terms of population. So the white moderate who are living majority in many states, they are the ones who are looking back and forth between each side, okay? And they're, they're trying to decide, all right, what do we do here, right? What do we decide to do? Who do we follow? Who do we believe in? And I don't believe that the far, far progressive left 
or the far, far traditional right, both of which who are, I mean, I don't want to call them committing acts of terrorism per se, but violence. I don't think that's very appealing to either one. But when you have highly publicized and, and media prevalent movements such as Black Lives Matter, that is almost a double-edged sword in that I think it generally had a, a lot of good ideas behind it, but a lot of violent people ruined that. I think that white moderate then starts to go, you know what, I don't like that, right? And they start going to, to more extreme ends because they don't see their values being fulfilled. And so ultimately, yeah, when you have these conflicting ideologies, that's the problem with democracy sometimes is that sometimes these ideologies don't just wisp away right they they fester and they continue to magnify until people don't feel like they're being heard and so to some extent i see those riots mixed in with protests that we saw what last summer and i see desperate uh people and i see people taking advantage of that desperateness too. I see um, a whole collection of people, but without, like you said, without an MLK of our time, we don't have any leader like that now that we can look to, right? And so these competing ideologies don't have any direction they're really going into. It's a bunch of people back and forth saying, well, we want this, but we want that. It's, it's, impatient people who are not patient enough to realize that laws and ideologies and values take time to change. The civil rights movement itself took decades to get what it needed. And so I guess when I look at society in general, it's it's really hard because it, yeah, it seems like these movements are shooting themselves in the foot, you know? And they're trying to get across good ideas, right? We wanna treat everyone equally. We don't want oppression to occur. We don't want all these things, but their solutions are sometimes half-hearted. They're, they're, that white moderate isn't convinced. They're not being convinced because some of those white moderates are living in Seattle and down the street when stuff's being burned down or in another area when they're having, you know, the modern clan, you know, walking through their town, it's it's difficult to make choices nowadays. And with social media and with how tight knit we are now, you're almost expected to make a choice all of the time. You don't have the choice anymore to sit back. I like that you brought up the white moderate because that's a pretty good summation of arguably the largest political class in the United States and the one that everyone seems to forget about. For example, people forget that half of the U.S. is a registered independent or at least not registered um, primary Republican or Democrat. Those numbers are about 25% a pop. And this group you mentioned is, I suspect, being pushed away from, let's say, movements like BLM and uh, through lucky and or unlucky timing, someone like Donald Trump, because there's this weird phenomenon where the mainstream in our society is able to pick up the noise of the edge cases of the left, but 
the edge cases of the right don't get this same kind of political noise. And I can understand that a general trend towards progressivism in a nation built on free expression is not a bad framework to have. But it is odd that one side is able to have such influence, uh, you know, influence where someone working at Google could tweet, uh, maybe not tweet, but could release and publish that, uh, for all intents and purposes, men are not women, which, yeah, that's an opinion you may not agree with, but at the same time, he can be fired for that because Google would get so much backlash. And that is such an interesting dynamic at play where you can only hope that there is no tyranny of the majority because the majority thinks that they should agree with some mainstream progressivism that has taken hold in the U.S., which is unfortunate because I actually agree with generally liberal values socially, but you can't have sober conversation if you are, as we both said, fighting a battle that would be better fought with words than it would with action. And I know some people would disagree with me on that, but it is challenging because we don't have the MLK, and we're at a different time where MLK wouldn't stand. He would lose the majority favor, not because he wouldn't be wonderful and progressive, but because we need someone who has power in a way that, let's say, Barack Obama did. And he was in a much more authoritative power de jure than, uh, than MLK ever was. But that almost proves a point to the counter to this white backlash of, you might say, counter-progressivism, uh, that we actually, we did it. Racism's done, you know? Obama was elected. And it, it's just really challenging because you take this whole dynamic of media making our battle significantly more challenging combined with identity politics which uh, we may disagree here but I'm actually someone who who is not a fan of identity politics I think you should shape your 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 person and your politics around your entire being not just one facet of your identity uh, and, and honestly let's let's hit on that I want to know since you've mentioned this a couple times already in this podcast uh not just how identity politics plays into this, but what are your thoughts on identity politics? Do you think there is value in aligning your whole persona around, let's say, the LGBTQ plus community? That's a very common identity. Or do you think there needs to be more individualism in a way that I do? So I, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring this up because you know, we'll get to critical race theory later, but um, from my understanding, critical race theory has a big, big, big impact on the notion of identity politics. I would sit here and say that it's probably the sole reason that it's so prevalent now. They've, they've made a very large case for it in expressing both the political side of yourself and intertwining that with your identity. I mean, that's that's from their source material themselves. So it's really interesting you bring this up because yeah, it's this this isn't some idea that sprung out five years ago, right? Like we could look back five, 10 years ago 
and say that's roughly when people started use, utilizing this identity politics, right? To the extreme extent would be you can't speak on this because you're not X, right? Like that's the extreme. And another extreme would be I believe this because solely because I am a part of this X group, right? Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with it, small scale. Um, I don't think that we can fully do away with our identities uh, regarding, you know, the way we interpret the world. I think as humans, that's kind of what we generally do, right? Um, we base, our environment is based off of so many things and our identity kind of plays into that too. If you're raised in a predominantly white, black, Hispanic community, your identity plays a pretty big portion into some values that you have, right? But to base it then fully political, right? Once you bring in the politics, things start to get complicated because politics is complicated. It's nuanced. It's dangerous. It's just a lot of things. And I would generally disagree that someone should come to a conclusion about, I don't know, immigration because this, because of their skin color, right? Like that would not make general sense, but I could also get where they're coming from. If they're Hispanic and you're discussing immigration, I could understand that there's something emotional there, right? There's something emotional there. Identity politics plays on your emotions. It, it, emotions are its fuel it's its source and so emotions not that they don't have a place in discussion or in reasoning but sometimes they can cloud that and so the way that i see it is that i personally am not going to make a decision about any issue because i am personally white or personally a male as hard as it is though it's hard right like it's hard if you are a male and you're trying to be a decent person, right? But somebody, I don't know, I've had this experience before. I have a girlfriend and she's discussed to me about walking down the street, right? And for her, she's afraid when she passes by men because statistically, right, something could happen to her. Um, and deep down in yourself, it's so hard sometimes not to be emotionally like responding to that and saying, but wait, I'm a man and I'm totally fine, right? So in the end, I think the psychology of humans is that sometimes we do need to feel like we have to attach ourselves to an identity because it makes us a part of the in-group. It makes us a part of something. Groups are human in nature. Well, I mean, they occur in other animal kingdoms, of course, but like in terms of humans, they're so interesting in that from the time you're a baby, you learn, you, you don't even need to learn how to smile. Babies just know to smile, right? And so to me, it's like identity politics makes so much sense because it's instinctually human. It just makes sense. But politically, when we're talking about hard issues here, complicated issues, nuanced issues, identity doesn't have as big of a role in my opinion to play as other objective truth. There's an, uh, there's a set of interesting side effects that occur here. Let's look at Asian Americans uh, because there was already one set of side effects uh, that I'll go into in the education system. 
But then most recently, we've also had side effects because of COVID. And in reverse order, I find it really fascinating how human beings, to your point, psychologically are almost wired to do this in-grouping and out-grouping. I'm sure there's evolutionary reasons for this. Uh, We can, on this one end, uh, blame, at least a number of people can blame, people who look Asian for spreading COVID with us. And I'm sure in this conversation, we'll end up diving more into COVID because it's so fascinating. Uh, But we are able to, as a society, allow these hate crimes to take over America in some small way uh, because of this identity we associate with a inhuman virus. And somehow we can associate that with an entire subset of the human species, which is obviously the the dangerous side, continuing the train of thought you were having. But there's also a flip side where you can start to enter a world of hypocrisy. And this is where the right uh, gains their footing a lot of times in these arguments and, and often has better points in these arguments for these specific edge cases. Let's look, for example... Um, systemic racism against Asians in discriminatory acts at the university level. Uh, I remember the um, Students for Fair Admissions uh, organization at Harvard had to sue Harvard admissions because Asians are discriminated against in higher education. They have uh, they are the only ethnic group, as far as I'm aware, that have since 2006 increased their test scores. Everyone else has had significantly or uh, at least somewhat lower test scores on the average, whereas Asians have continued to excel. The The median salary for an Asian woman uh, is approximately the same as the median salary for a white male. And so now we have a situation where If we continue this train of thought without any level of nuance, which I know you are certainly a proponent of, we end up having cases that actually don't fit the norm. They don't fit the identity. And now, if we base our day-to-day interactions on these identities, fine, that's one thing. But if we begin to base our legislation on it or base our admissions processes on it, then there's actually consequences that can harm these same minorities who we are supposedly protecting. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. It's 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 hard sometimes because, yeah, what do you do when a group generally does perform better than the average population? Do you make it harder for them or do you make it easier for the other groups, right? Like how what where does the equality play here, right? Or are we simply looking at equality of opportunity and then just saying go run the race right or are we looking at equality of outcome and attempting to control that race you know like that's the big question and just to give certain perspective yeah i lived in uh, japan for six years i was born there then we moved around um and then came back when i was in uh, what fourth grade to ninth grade And I went to an American international school, but we had a lot of uh, quite wealthy local Japanese parents who usually could speak English, um, put their kids in these schools because they're good schools. They're uh, private schools. 
Um, the government paid for my schooling, so I'm not some like wealthy person. Um, but you know, you had these kids in there who some were were half, you know, uh, others were full Japanese. But it was interesting to see the dynamics there, to see firsthand, yeah, just how different their lives are in the sense that the parenting is so much different in these groups. I don't know where it necessarily comes from. I don't know where in history it started, but Japanese parents, my, my parents are in Korea now, Korean parents. I've been to China before Chinese parents, those immigrants coming to the U S or those putting their kids in U S schools, those kids are doing very well. Uh, naturally. However, the thing is you eventually, like eventually you'll have a kid who's fairly average and, and like does normally, but yeah, it's, it's hard for them to deal with that, obviously. Um, but generally, yeah, these kids are doing very well and it's strict parenting and it's uh, uh, certain laws in, in education um, things put in place within these countries to get their kids through school i mean their high school is basically college and then get them to an extremely extremely um difficult uh, uh post high school education and so they are taught from a very young age that hard work is key they are expected to become doctors lawyers certain things right so i think when they come to the states yeah they they have a certain edge and what that edge is is like I mean, I can't describe it. It's just in the air. It's this hard work. You're going to be the best. And that causes some to fail because it's too much for them, but it causes many to outperform just about everyone else. And it's a shame though, that they're dealing with such difficult lives already. And then on top of that, their scores are being tampered with because they're almost doing too well. So yeah, it's, it's so complicated. This is a microcosm of our failing to uh, approach this soberly in America because uh, looking at these cultural differences, we can say, okay, there's some reason for this. If you want to just use a general term like culture, that, uh, that suffices in our, in our normal conversations. But then, again, to my point, we seemingly have to admit okay, well, we're not colorblind. We're not all exactly the same. Maybe certain cultures prioritize working harder than others. But then part of me empathizes, although I would, I would never phrase it like this, part of me can empathize with those who are likely not well-read or, or, or just very blunt people who pose the question of, oh, what if certain groups are not prioritize, prioritizing education in the same way? And, and it leads to a lot of ethical dilemmas because uh, let's look at the ACT or SAT. Um, University of California schools, they are no longer uh, requiring, and actually I believe no longer allowing ACT and SAT scores to be part of the application uh, admissions process, which at first glance seems well-intentioned, and I'm sure it is because there are uh, very high correlates between someone's income and how well someone does on standardized testing because they can afford tutors and things like that at a high level. And there's also a high correlate between income and 
race. But what we've done is made this jump that may be justified. I'm not well read enough to say, but we've made this jump from uh, rules and policies that help those of minority status to equating that with helping those of um, of impoverished status. And I'm not sure if that's the answer because part of me, let's look at this one specific example of ACT and SAT scores. I'm going to guess the same disparities occur across GPA. I'm going to guess the same disparities occur across opportunities in schools depending on how good your school system is. And all of these things are, are linked to are linked to social status, are linked to wealth, are linked to race. But I don't know how removing one set of tests because the test gives different outcomes actually solves any problems. No, and I, I don't think it does. Personally, I don't. Um, the way I see it is... Um, I don't really have specific opinions about standardized testing and yeah, how good of indicators that they are for setting someone up for life. Right. Because usually other factors are involved, as you mentioned, like someone who does better on a test. And if you correlate that to later income in life, it's probably not the test that got them there. It's everything around it. It's the support that they had. And um, I actually took a class recently. I'm not trying to state I'm a genius because I took a class, right? I, I don't like when people do that. But just to give some nuance, I, I took a race and ethnicity class recently. And we, we looked into, yeah, the, the different ethnicities or races, um, African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, white, Asian in America, and their stress on academia right on on achieving that and Asians uh as I mentioned yes their their parents were you know their expectations the parents were yeah you need a bachelor's degree at least higher education is much sought after like the numbers for uh Asian Americans who get higher educations just trump you know all the other ones um all the other races um, and then they're expected to become doctors, yeah, and lawyers and whatnot, right? And then you have white Americans who don't really have a, this is from polling, right? So it's not going to be the best data, but they generally have an aspect of, you know, average, right? Like you don't need to like exceed like Asian Americans per se, but get a higher education. You're all mostly generally going to get into college. So get a degree and get out, right? Then you have Hispanic Americans and African Americans who historically have dealt with difficulties, right? And so that's going to impact certain generations and generational wealth to really see what they can achieve now. And it's it's quite interesting. Hispanic Americans have strong worth, uh, work ethic, but their parents are happy if they just, you know, get a certain, I don't know, emphasis in a mechanical area. They, they don't need to go to uh, school per se. Trade schools, other things are just as equally um, achievable and they believe yeah, that's the American dream, you know, finish high school, go to a trade school, you don't need that higher education, and you're all set, you know, we like that, right, 
In African-Americans, it's really interesting. Graduating high school is super important. That is like stressed. And getting to college is even like even more um, stressed in terms of just at least getting to it, right? So it's just interesting how each in polling, each of the races looks at education, and this is coming from the parents' lenses. So it's clear that some races come at these problems differently because they already assume that they're not gonna make it a certain length, or they assume their child will succeed in the cases of white Americans and Asian Americans. So yeah, it, it's differing viewpoints and how they view their own situations that yeah, is probably shaped by 20 plus number of factors that go into it. But I, I think that's really interesting. And yes, so in the end, I don't, I don't think switching up standardized testing is going to fix that because there's, there's genuine mental attitudes that pervade each race that are generalized and can let us see, okay, like these races are kind of viewing their successes differently in America. This makes me think about uh, HBCUs, historically black uh, colleges and universities. And just hearing what you're saying, it leads me to think that there's an easy link to, uh, to draw in your, in your mind between the perception of what's attainable to me, let's say based on my race or based on my parents' education level or my immigration status or my, how much income I have, all of these, these different dynamics. And it makes you think, okay, I can understand how these have become commonplace and are now even being promoted, having increasing levels of scholarships awarded to them. And when this uh, HBCU is, is promoted somewhere, it's generally for uh, black Americans. And maybe that's the best solution. But I want to pick your brain a little bit just because I've never heard this discussed. What do you think would be the outcome if we started doing this, not we as in me, but we as in the community started developing something like this for Asian Americans? Do you think this would have an interesting backlash of a dynamic where now we actually divide communities further because the cultural norms of, let's say, um, success in America that pervade Asian communities would now accelerate as they are continually growing in their own colleges and universities, and it would actually hinder the equality of other minorities in the U.S.? What do you think that would look like, uh, just out of curiosity? <laughs> so, you know, to start off, I personally don't think I would ever support uh, de, you know, or segregation of any kind from what it sounds like. Um, I kind of get the idea behind it. If you, Asian Americans are doing so well and you put them in schools specifically for them, that could provide some interesting data. I, I would be really interested to see if anything like that has been done. But for the sake of just, you know, picking my brain, just really theorizing about this i i don't know if i could see much good coming from that um and, and this goes back lightly to critical race theory which does um does put forth the idea of of uh, segregationism again um and the idea that 
the melting pot vision of of the United States is a sham, essentially, in that it hasn't worked. And so we should go back into communities that are separate. Um, and I, I would disagree. So I, I would say I, I wouldn't even want that done in the first place. I personally think that people need that experience of mixing, even though it may not, I guess, have the outcome that we want. Because in the end, I guess, I guess some, I don't know, that's really tough. That was a that was a good question, because it's hard to generalize entire cultures, right? But if we were to just say, for example, that X culture was lacking behind like Y and Z, would we would we entirely uh, blame that culture for the situation that they're in? And would we believe that if, yeah, they had their own X school to go into, that they would do better? Or I, I don't really know. That's that's very very difficult to say personally i'm never for splitting people up um just from the social aspect of it i I think people need to be together but it's very telling that there are differences between each groups and i don't know tell me your thoughts well it makes me think about as you said critical race theory which is something that I have yet to fully wrap my mind around. I don't know if my sources are telling me different versions of this uh, reality or these proposals. Because to your point, there seems to be this, uh, this phrase is going to have a negative connotation, but a, a segregationist mindset towards developing us, you know, a, a prioritizing of our identities, a prioritizing of our communities, and how we can grow in these in these ways without needing some kind of, as CRT often puts it, um, some kind of intrinsic, uh, historical, potentially oppressive force, which many people would uh, paint as a intrinsic white supremacy, which we could get into that. Um, but at the flip side, while that's happening, there's also, in critical race theory, a great value of equity, this equality of outcome. Uh, as being what we should shoot for, not simply equality of opportunity. And what really worries me, and I, I don't know if this is foundational to reality, and I hope I'm wrong about this, but what really worries me is actually not separating people into groups, because if we're able to somehow uh, legislate well enough away from what is perceived by proponents of critical race theory as an oppressive state. If we're able to legislate away from that into a neutral state, even in that hypothetical world, then I actually don't think we're going to become more unified. I worry it's going to divide us more based on our cultural differences. And on a similar vein to this uh, hypothetical Asian-only university, you know, something like a, a weird derivative of HBCUs, if you have individual pockets of society having their own developmental periods, their own uh, growth, their own academia, whatever you want to define it on, whichever axis, uh, you're going to end up, I think, having worse outcomes, or at least having outcomes that are more divisive we're going to begin to regress rather than continually progress on our um, implementation of the legal system towards different demographics and things like that 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and it's interesting that critical race theory is brought up so much, but you know, they, they comment on this so much themselves and they do discuss quite often, um, you know, in a, in kind of like a dreamlike state, they look at, uh, for example, when they were first writing, it was specifically people of color were black, right? They, there weren't as many other races mentioned um, just because of historical context. But they, they mentioned, yes, like with uh, Stokely Carmichael, uh, Malcolm X, many black nationalist leaders, some of whom may have changed their opinions over time, but when they were first writing, they look at those and they kind of look at those with dreamy eyes, right? Those, those concepts of um, black nationalist um, enclaves separate from the white world, right? Like, like to them, because they don't believe that society is going up the way that it should be or, or the best way that it could be. So in this example, differing um, incomes per race, for example, um, they then would suggest to, I guess, scrap the system, you know, and, and scrap it and replace it with, yeah, something different, as you mentioned, something where they are segregationist in a way, if that's even a word. Um, and somehow that would produce better group outcomes and somehow that would produce better things. But that that doesn't cross my mind as as reasonable in any way. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I don't believe that the melting pot vision of the United States is completely perfect by any means. I, I don't think as humans, we can all just, you know, sing Kumbaya and like, just everyone and their group differences are all great, but completely separating them and having them, you know, perform their own academia. Yeah, like if you had white specific academia and Hispanic specific academia, putting that subjectivity between these different enclaves only further divides them because each of those subjective points of view are gonna provide vastly different outcomes. Right. And though it's important to get specific um, subjective lenses into how certain groups perceive the world, you're never going to get anything done because everyone's going to be putting out different things. And so to me, yeah, that idea doesn't seem like it would solve what we have now, even though I think the current system in place isn't doing an amazing job it's holding it together to a certain extent but scrapping it i i don't believe would be i i think that would personally be too progressive for my taste but that's just me to take this a level deeper to the underpinnings of what in critical race theory would be described as um damaging to our society but in, in other history books would be described as unifying and that is our democracy, our republic, something we've had for a few hundred years. Uh, how, uh, what level of white supremacy or superiority do you think that there remains? You know, how much is the base of our melting pot, in fact, Alfredo sauce, as it were? <laughs> I like that uh, Alfredo sauce analogy. Um, man, okay, so 
to answer this question, I first, I, I'm not going to do some lecture on critical race theory, but I have been able to have some access to the texts before. And now these texts have different renditions, right? Like you have critical legal studies, which was its origin, which was law-based. It completely focused on law and post um civil rights movement and the colorblind laws that followed so it was a critique of those and it was basically suggesting that there is no concept of colorblindness that exists because everyone has prejudice or implicit racial biases and we can get to that in a second but that that's just giving the foundation for it then it morphed into critical race theory which in their books, they actually say, basically, we didn't even expect it to turn into this, but it did. And it turned into basically a political philosophy of a sort that, yeah, was was meant to drive away from only not only law, but then to politics, to the economy, to academia, to anything that it could cover and to basically the entirety of the system that we have today. So in the end, um, or I should say for the introduction to it. Um, yeah, critical race theory looks to uh, conflict with, and they have X, X, X things. They have enlightenment rationalism. That's one thing they mention in their books. They mention constitutionalism. They mention liberalism. All of those, they don't outright state we disagree, but it's kind of implied. And so those are all very, important values of our country so to get what you're talking about i think it's important to first yeah kind of get the lay of the land in terms of critical race theory and what it's actually wanting to figure out and um what it wants to figure out is essentially a society where that colorblindness is i don't know it's it's basically void in some sense and um, the problem with that, I find, is that the values that we hold today are distinctly um, in conflict with the values in their books. And their books have been coming out, what, since the 70s for critical le uh, legal theory, but through the 90s for critical race theory up until 2017 is their most recent one. But um, ultimately, I don't know. I don't want to go too far onto critical race theory, but... Um, so first, I'll, I'll just want to know what you think, um, and then I can continue. Well, this is where one of my uh, admitted points of ignorance uh, lays, because I grew up being someone who uh, appreciated a number of subjects in school. Let's just take this at a childhood level and work from there, you know, mathematics being one of them. I love numbers. I found... A sense of beauty and the rationalism of it all uh, but I, I never had a appreciation for history and again to my earlier comment that I often get backlash for this because I still haven't quite uh, uh, let's say appreciated history in the same way that a lot of people do for better or for worse uh, I don't actually know the these backbones that are often promoted by new progressive um, commentary around critical race theory or otherwise stating that uh, institutions were racist in, in some way because drug crimes were enforced differently and they're still enforced differently to this day. I just don't know enough about that to say. 
you know, is it the case that policing is racist today? That's something we can get into in a moment, but and that's because it was actually created simply to oppress um, African Americans uh, during days uh, of slavery or shortly after. Maybe that's true. I actually am going to wholeheartedly say I don't know enough to be able to say, to continue my uh, somewhat goofy metaphor, how much Alfredo sauce is in this base of, uh, of melting pot. I actually don't know. Yeah. Um, so to get to the heart of that question, um, and one minor question you brought up, yes, I, I believe the history regarding the police force was originated in slave catchers, quote unquote, who were, I guess, a, a force created to try and find runaway slaves, if I'm correct. And that's actually interesting you bring that up because that's a quite an important part of the evidences critical race theory brings up. So for for basically the, the system being and the country being inherently white supremacist. Um, that evidence is the historical context of the time. So what they do is they basically say, because there is a history of oppression, because police forces, for example, had their roots in this slave catcher thing, or because the Declaration of Independence, which we, or Constitution, which we uh, hold today and, and base our you know, values off of today was built during a racist time and the notion of all men being created equal was not enacted. This means that there's a connection there in racism, that it means that it's racist today. It means that there's really no question about it because it had its roots in it. You need to like unroot it. You need to unearth it and fix that. And there's nothing else that can solve that. And so to, to get to your point about the Alfredo sauce, that's essentially what their books discuss is that there's a lot of aspects to their, they, they have rational thought they do in the books. Um, for example, they rag on colorblindness a lot. They don't believe um, that society today reflects a good form of that. They don't believe colorblindness is possible because um, the dominant culture of white, you know, like not the skin color per se, but just the culture has pervaded essentially. And colorblindness and integration to them are the two main things they have problems with because integration they believe has power dynamics that aren't fair. So when black people integrated into white society, they believe that their culture stayed behind and they believe that black people integrated but didn't bring their culture with them didn't bring uh uh what made them inherently black right to be black they believe that that was tainted by generalized white culture because white culture is just so much bigger right like because they are the majority because they are the quote-unquote oppressors again this whole philosophy is oppressor versus oppressed base um, so it's really important to understand that because like uh, Marx, for example, they, they aren't shy with tying themselves to Marxism, but like Marx, he discussed an oppressor versus oppressed, but it was economic based, 
or it was class-based, right? For them, it's race-based essentially. And um, they see the United States as, um, in their words, a bastion for white supremacy. And that is based on the predication that all white people have inherent biases within them due to the general white uh, majority culture. So to explain this a little better, because it gets really confusing sometimes, they utilize these terms of whiteness, quote unquote whiteness, which is used to explain acting white, right? So if you've ever heard that a successful person of color is ever said to be acting white, this is kind of what they mean by this, is that if somebody's acting white, which means they are ascribed to the status quo, and the status quo written in their books is basically everything wrong with the system. It's that uh, rationality. It's that um, enlightenment rationalism. It's that liberalism. It's it's the system as a whole, in a sense. It's the uh, economic system. It's just about every system. So if you participate in that status quo, in that system, you are participating in a racist system. And if you're participating in a white or racist system, then you are a part of the problem. So while racism to them is a power dynamic, it's not inferior, inferiority or superiority, it's based on power balances and who has the power. White people have all the institutional power, black people have none. Then as a white person, if you aren't actively fighting against that system then you are racist as well and if you are african-american or another person of color and you are participating in that system you have lost your um you essentially your culture in a way um it's it's kind of complicated in the books they i forgot that the word that they use it's a very specific word that they use to uh describe um the the culture of people of color if that makes sense because it's a very important part that they hold to themselves but either way to get to the gist um if you're participating in the system which they believe to be a regime of white supremacy or a bastion of white supremacy then you are a part of the problem and um they also kind of lightly pepper in their concepts of after the civil rights movement a a kind of cloud of implicit racism um, laid in the minds of white Americans. Um, they write that as well. So there, there is this notion, I think that's kind of where you get the all white people are racist type of concepts from, or you're either with us or you're not with us, or you're acting quote unquote white. Like this is all in relation to these original uh, CRT ideas, right? And so you know, the way I see it in terms of CRT, yeah, they believe white supremacy to be probably the number one problem in America. And they ascribe all differences um, between races to be racism, and they state it in their books. So that actually clears up some of what I've seen in uh, just in my reading, uh, this distinction of whiteness versus white people, let's say. They're, they're not necessarily the same thing, because you could be a white ally and not be invoking this sense of whiteness, which I couldn't quite understand. Uh, but it has this oddly hypocritical tinge of 
the, uh, I don't know if slander is the right word, but the, yeah, let's say slander of other African Americans by calling them Uncle Toms. Because, again, I'm not a history buff, but unless I'm missing the point entirely, that was a bad thing. That was not progressive. That was defeating the purpose because the goal was to unify and all have an equal level of power. Something critical race theory is also addressing is power. Uh, So I actually don't know how you can on one hand want to address a power dynamic, but also embrace a philosophy that sounds so similar to the Uncle Tom shaming of days past that I, I actually don't know how to I don't know how to um, steel man the argument, so to speak. Yeah, no, that that's the complication is that you find, I mean, look, in the end, I could be interpreting the text incorrectly. So I just want to make that clear. Read it for yourself, you know, figure out what it means to you, right? But from my understanding of it, there are a lot of complications with the writings because not only, I mean, look, it's a philosophy, so... I get that. But not only do they generalize an incredible amount, they generalize, 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 Um, but they make blatant assumptions of the minds of a human being. And not only the minds of a human being, but the minds of every single human being of a certain race, right? And that is the problem. Believing that every group must think the same thing or feel the same way about something is kind of racism in some odd way. So that aside, yeah, there's clearly problems with what they write. And the problem is that they don't have a solution to the problem Um, in their writings. They are kind of like, eh, we're still figuring it out. That's basically what they write. They don't have a vision for a utopia yet, but some examples they have for, I mean, some small examples, I guess, would be one writer discusses um, how he thinks there needs to be some big change that happens. He doesn't say what that means per se, but that sounds revolutionary to some extent. So some believe that there must be revolution of a kind, because again, if you have a corrupted white supremacist system, how else are you going to deal with it? You kind of have to raise it to the ground, right? Um, Others think that it needs to Uh, find its way into law and uh, some or the voting system. So one writer discusses how changing voting to uh, uh, race percentage voting. So based on districts, racial makeup should change, like, I guess, who the vote goes to per se or something like that. So race should be a big factor in voting. Um, Another one is... uh, academia so man academia is a huge one for critical race theory because i think if you've paid any attention to academia you've noticed some slight you know uh impacts being made and they they would like academia um to teach critical race theory not like up front, but more of, they describe it as air in the atmosphere. They would want critical race theory to be so just known that it's not even a question of whether it's true or not. It's just taught like it, that, that it just is right. It just exists. So 
they believe that the system is genuinely the best system for the United States. And what that means is being quote unquote race conscious. So that was another thing I did want to briefly get into is um, race consciousness is essentially looking at race in everything that you see, right? So it's the opposite of being colorblind. Instead of believing that everybody is equal just as a human being, they believe not in the racist terms that nobody's equal. It's more of like, that's impossible because people see race no matter what. And because you see race, you need to become conscious about it. And because you're race conscious, you can then live as a productive member of society and everything is amazing and kumbaya or whatever, right? But again, there's there's problems there because becoming race conscious, according to them, is in a way, I guess, arguing with assimilation. It's arguing with the notion that, yeah, everyone should have equal opportunity to some extent. It, it, it would never find an end to it. That's the way I see it. It's It would always be a, well, I see race in every crevice in every place. Therefore, we could never have oppression end. We could never have any problem end because if you're always seeing race, then that's all you see. And that's genuinely probably the main problem I have with it. This makes me think two things. One, that I can somewhat understand how uh, quickly it seems that uh, states are able to pass bans on certain concepts that address certain races or sexes being superior or people being unconsciously racist. I know Idaho, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Tennessee, uh, I believe, are the four that have already done this. Even if it's not in opposition, which I assume there is some of that as well, but even if it's simply out of trying to stay out of the seemingly uncharted territory and... I don't want to say unsubstantiated claims because I just haven't seen the evidence, but seemingly difficult to substantiate claims. Uh, I can, first of all, see why that's happened in, in a couple states, although uh, based on the states it's been, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some regional backlash that's actually causing this uh, disagreement as well. And secondly, it to give credence to the anarcho-communists, uh, of the world, you know, growing in popularity in very liberal uh, areas such as, you know, Boulder, Berkeley, and so forth. Uh, I can see how that would rise out of this uh, perception that our foundation is racist, that it's flawed at its core. Because once you admit that the core of what you are, are, are voting on, the core of what you are working through the core of the businesses once you admit that all of this is flawed intrinsically it's actually not a very big jump to then say let's just scrap the whole thing now in practice is anarchism a very good way to implement progressivism in the 21st century well i would argue not because it doesn't do you any favors in terms of a welfare state that's for certain but but that aside uh it's not a challenging jump to make. I can actually understand how you get from, okay, the, the core of the United States is, is damaged, irreparably so. Therefore, let's, let's no longer follow any of those teachings. Let's reset. I can see how that happens. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I'm not surprised that critical race theory or its uh, proponents have made certain gains per se because, well, it's not really that far-fetched in a way that if you believe something is so, you know, there is so much sin to it. If there is so much damage that why don't we just tear it down make something new it didn't work right so let's just try something new but the problem with that is that if you got anyone with some basic critical thinking and some willingness to read some stuff i think that they would realize in a a quick moment that not everything is so beyond repair right Repair has been attempted, I mean, since the, the country was founded, right? Like, we've, we've always been attempting to make it better to some extent. So, personally, yeah, I would disagree with the idea of revolution or completely changing everything. But, yeah, I could totally get why someone would hear certain ideas of critical race theory and then say, well, it makes sense to tear it down. But if they were to read the actual source text, I think they would be like, wait a second, this is a little, this is a little too much, you know, or this is a little bit of a unjustified critique to some extent. You did mention you haven't seen the data that they bring up. And I'm not saying that their data isn't convincing, at least in other authors. So I will bring up, do you know Ibram X. Kendi? I do not. So he wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. So anti-racism is a big buzzword now too, right? And while he doesn't necessarily claim to be a critical race theorist, because, I mean, technically he's not, a lot of his ideas, such as in his books, he writes all all white people being implicitly racist, that comes from the source text of uh, CRT quite profoundly. Um, and a lot of the other ideas such as anti-racism um, come from that as well. And so in his book, he discusses how anti-racism, because the system is racist, right? And because whiteness is racist, if you are a white person, I mean, he doesn't really address what happens when you're a white ally, are you still racist or not? But he does say to be an anti-racist you have to reject that system, right? If you're complicit in it, then you are racist. And in his book, he explicitly states, there's no in between. You're either racist or anti-racist. So that kind of, um, that kind of like separation between the two, like allowing for no middle ground, I think is also very, very problematic when discussing philosophies like these. To have a philosophy that is so set on being divisive and and stating well x is x y is y there is no in between that is ultimately very dangerous to really any society and so um he's one example there are other authors who have commented um on the theory and on society in general but yeah i i would generally disagree with uh, communists uh, in this day and age and uh, anarchists to whatever extent. But at the same time, I mean, they can do whatever they want. They can believe whatever they want. 
but I would not want to see a uh, United States mid-revolution. That's all I can say. Let's talk anti-racism. Would you consider yourself to be anti-racist? So, man, so that's tough because it's almost like you have to say yes, right? Because if you, it's almost like, well, do you, when people put you on the spot, like, do you support Black Lives Matter? It's like, well, I think Black Lives Matter, so I need to say that, right? Like, of course I do then, right? Of course I'm anti-racist, but but by definition, right, am I anti-racist? Well, being anti-racist basically means you accept all of the above, right? You you then have to accept that you are in a quote-unquote regime of white supremacy. You have to believe that whiteness is inherently racist. You have to believe that yourself, you are racist, no matter what you do. Um, you have to believe that you basically have to atone for that racism. You have to believe that because you are complicit in the system, you have to, to be anti-racist, you have to not be complicit. But not being complicit in the system, I mean, how do you even do that? In his book, Ibram X. Kendi, he also writes that capitalism is racist. So if I buy goods, am I racist? Um, if I get a job, am I racist? You know, these are all obviously kind of ridiculous hypotheticals, but they're created from his book because he doesn't provide alternative examples for this. He, he just states it right then and there. So am I anti-racist? Well, that means that I have to support CRT's original ideas. And while I think the theory is very helpful and insightful in some cases, I, I agree with certain parts of it. I can't really agree that I myself am racist. I, I can't say that. Like, I just can't. And so I would say I'm not a racist person, but um, I support people of color. I, I do what I can, but it, it then starts becoming this, well, I have a black friend. So, you know, like to what extent can you prove that you are or are not racist? That's the question. And so because of that, I, I can't answer that because I don't know. I really don't know. And to your point, I like that last bit you mentioned about proof. There is an interesting development, almost a game, although I don't want to paint a worse picture than is is trying to be painted, that there is some level of proof required. Saying you have black friends doesn't count as proof, although I actually have an interesting opinion on that, but we can save that for, for, for later. Um but it is interesting. There's this level of, well, are you an ally enough? Are you anti-racist enough? And I actually benefited the doubt to the average liberal, let's say. I don't think that this is a, a, a value, a, a judgment being made actively by the average liberal. I think this is another... Um, maybe failing or, or maybe just miscalculation on, on, on the mainstream media in, in the sense that one edge of the political spectrum is winning the societal debate currently, that this seems really mainstream. And maybe it is, but I'm going to guess it's not. I'm, I'm going to assume it's actually not the mainstream because 
these ideals and maybe uh, requisites that, that were similar in, in connotation were not mainstream enough that the average American, even those with seemingly with their head on straight, would still vote for someone like Trump, who maybe in our election was the the better president. I don't think so, uh, by by any stretch of my imagination. But uh, fair enough if you do. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hate you over it in some sense. But at least I can empathize with the fact that seemingly uh, apolitical people who are hopefully having their head on straight, unless we want to say half the country is racist, which I guess CRT does in some sense, the, the majority managed to elect this person. So there, there's an interesting phenomenon that I think is actually a miscalculation of media rather than a tyranny of a uh, uh, regressive uh, majority, if you follow my train of thought. So you're you're suggesting that the media and just social media in general is hyping up the concept that anti-racism is like more popular than it actually is or like people are actually internalizing that and like having to atone and and you know bow down to people of color or like you know things like that i i would completely agree yeah i think that's the case i don't know if i if i'd say it exactly in, in the same way but Yes, that general idea that this, that's at least the perception. That's if you ask the average American who isn't an alt-right conspiracy theorist, but maybe they watch Fox News. And yes, there's obviously a failing in, in objective truth being presented uh, on, on Fox in particular, but as well as media across the platform. But they're still just average people. If you ask them, what's the perception of something like critical race theory, which I can only assume is well-intentioned. I'm sure it is. Uh, their perception is probably going to be something of the uh, something synonymous with what Ben Shapiro would say online. Someone who is seemingly an objectively intelligent guy, but with this uh, this right swing that sometimes veers away from what I think is is based in reality. I think that's going to be your average right-wing American. But the problem is. It's so hard for me to tell, A, because media, it's hard to know what, what you're seeing. If you're getting the full picture, you really have to force yourself to look at a lot of different sources. Social media is so heavily algorithm-based that you really have to be thoughtful and self-aware to acknowledge when you're only being showed what you already agree with. And looking out opposing viewpoints psychologically is not enjoyable for most people. I also live in a very progressive city currently and have a very progressive job. So my, my only, uh, you know, just trying to use deductive reasoning as best as possible, and maybe this is inductive reasoning, which isn't quite as sound. My only thinking is that this isn't actually what the average American thinks. This isn't a, a failing of the majority that just pushed progressivism and good ideals a little bit too far. I really think it's a perceptual issue. No, I, I completely agree with that. Um, it's clearly not an issue that everyone shares unanimously within the United States, even as far as knowing what anti-racism means, you know, like these are, these are very concentrated concepts. And when you're someone like me, who's just fascinated by the existence of these philosophies and why they think the way they do of course 
I'm going to be seeing all this new vocabulary and all these things, but someone else right next to me won't know a thing about it, right? And the same goes for if they find something out and they research into something or whatever, I may know or not know about it either because yeah a lot of this stuff it's it's perceived to be bigger than it actually is and that can go for a lot of things that can go i mean into policing or into certain institutions or just everyday life you walk outside like all it takes is really a walk outside to realize that not all of these concepts are as big as you think right and even residing in a progressive area or a traditional area whatever issue is being talked about not a lot of people will have these rabid you know views on things to the point where they're calling you racist or they're calling you a piece of whatever right um and so of course yeah i i i agree in that the media plays a very large role in fear-mongering uh, they make a lot of money off of it, and I think I'm not very well versed on specifically what's been happening regarding the CRT in schools and public schools and, like, exactly what they're wanting to, quote-unquote, teach. Like, is it even CRT? Like, knowing now that I've read some of the source texts, like, would I read a news article, and when they explain what's being taught, would I even think that that's actually happening or is it more of like well we would just rather not whitewash history because that's a lot more innocent of a thing than brainwashing your children to have them believe that they're all racist or something right like so there's nuance to it and i frankly i think it's more fear-mongering and i also think it's hypocritical from the right who claims to hold on to truth right like ben shapiro facts not your feelings type of beliefs, but then get all butthurt when it comes to a new philosophy that's gaining some ground and wanting to ban it. It's like nobody wanted to agree with banning To Kill a Mockingbird for the words that had in it. Nobody wants to ban uh, uh, teaching about Nazism and uh, authoritarianism and nationalism. No one wants to ban that because we're doomed to repeat ourselves if uh, we do ban that and our kids will grow up not knowing about those concepts and so i think teach critical race theory um maybe not as the sole you know curriculum of the school but rather teach children about these concepts because they're going to encounter them at some point in their lives from a political perspective and i know money has so much to play here but i cannot wait for someone as a almost a third dimension to this pendulum swing Someone who swings the whole pendulum the other on the z-axis to the point of reality where they realize this could be a point of unification where you say, hey, actually, we all kind of agree. We all think that these extremes don't really represent us. We all think that the alt-right is terrible. We all think that burning things down is bad. But the only disagreement is that, okay, uh, there's this middle ground here that we perceive as what's good. So then... Oftentimes, uh, younger liberals especially get sucked into, okay, that's what's good. And all people want to do in society is fit in and, and feel like they're, they're doing something right with their lives. And let's say college kids, they're this perfect uh, solution of contrarianism and uh, moral development that all you want to do is the right thing. And if it's different than what society has taught you so far, and now there's this new thing that's seemingly pervasive and, and group identity is a facet of that 
that's enticing. So it's all well intentioned. But if we can all realize we're actually at the core saying similar things, and even those of us that are disagreeing are disagreeing for purely personal reasons, purely biological reasons, then we actually have a lot more common ground than anyone realizes. There is, I would argue, room for it, this total annihilation of the political world by some unifying independent, uh, at least in my dreams. Now, I realize in our system of, of PACs and super PACs, that might be challenging, but if we had a slightly better constitutional republic, there is so much common ground here. It's almost unimaginable to me that we haven't figured that out yet. No, I, I completely agree. Um, I do have a question, though, because perception obviously plays a big role in the divisiveness, right? Because you perceive your quote-unquote enemy to believe different things than you and you perceive them to have negative intentions. And this is just a, a loose example. There's uh, this social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt. Have you heard of him? I have. So he goes to certain universities. He has certain uh, lectures or whatnot, um, but he just does a poll of the audience every once in a while and asks them, how comfortable do you feel talking or or, uh, about your uh, beliefs on campus or like or or disagreeing with someone right and a good chunk of those audience members uh, mostly college students say yes you know it, they they perceive their college classes or the world around them to be hostile to their points of view when in reality are they what do, do you think it's it's actual um they're actually being targeted for their different viewpoints or are they just making it up? Are we all making up the concept that we're afraid to talk, even though most people probably agree with us because we have seen a few videos on the internet where some people did get shut down or they got canceled or they got um, internet blasted for it. Um, even though personally, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think I've ever been like pointed out by a majority and shamed you know um so yeah what do you think i think there's multiple things at play here first and foremost perception more so than even tactile sensation is our reality i mean even tactile sensation is all perceived by the brain in some way or another our, our reality is perceived by if we are lucid, uh, how sober we are, how much sleep we've had. I mean, these this really is our reality, no matter how you look at it. And that can be extrapolated to any facet of our existence, whether that's politics or, or otherwise. So uh, to that point, baseline, it doesn't surprise me that everyone's scared because we're all perceiving this world in, in one way or another as, as harmful. But the reason behind that, uh, I would say, is is twofold. One is a core biological problem of uh, a, a dislike for disagreement. Uh, I'm going to assume this is something of a, a failing of our technology evolving faster than we are. Uh, think about public speaking. There is no evolutionary reason to be deathly afraid of public speaking, yet most people are. That's just a 
side effect of the fact that public speaking, you know, giving TED Talks, was not something you did to survive uh, in, the, in the Great Plains. That, that didn't happen. So part of it, I, I assume, is just some biological failing. And then part of it, I truly believe, is failings of technology. We are in a, a, a greatly accelerating, well, a quickly growing uh, landscape. I'm, I'm not sure Moore's Law is really holding up, at least in the uh, um, transistor world. And COVID certainly put a dent in that as well. But it's, it's fair to say that our perceptions scare us. We've learned, and you can look at the, the psychology behind this, or even more precisely the political psychology, fear has a huge impact on what we what we perceive in the world. Look at YouTube recommendation feeds, for example, algorithm-based, obviously. They're going to be based on things you like, yes, but in many cases, it's going to be based on things that you fear. So you're not watching videos about liberalism to support your beliefs or conservatism to support your beliefs more likely you're watching videos about liberalism because you perceive them as opposite you uh, let's go extreme the libtard or because you're liberal and you perceive the right as opposite to you you know the alt-right there's this there's this in-grouping and out-grouping effect that i'm sure stems back to biology in the same way a lot of things stem back to biology uh, a lot of terrible things look at the animal kingdom, there are cases of natural rape occurring. Of course, that's unacceptable to us conscious moral creatures, right? But these are still unfortunate realities somewhere in biology for, for a number of animals, and we have our own, um, our own failings, just hopefully not to that extreme in most cases. So we just have to acknowledge what we can and cannot do, what our psychology can and cannot perceive, and, I, and I'm hopeful, it might be forced optimism, but I'm hopeful that we will, as we learn more about the human mind, more about psychology, more about neuroscience, we're going to realize most of the actions we have some uh, have some prior cause. And through understanding that cause, we can remove ourselves from the natural biological urges, the perceptions, the anger, or the fear, or the hatred, and realize, okay, I understand why I don't agree with you, and I'm going to choose to ignore that on some level, and then we can continue having a conversation respectfully. Um, how easy that would occur, I don't know. How, how doable it is right now, I don't know. If it'll ever happen, I don't actually know, but I am hopeful uh, if that long spiel answers your question. Yeah, no, it uh, that definitely does. It makes me think and kind of fear, I guess, the future in some way, because I'm like, biologically, will we ever evolve to put aside those differences or, or be able to control technology or we'll just keep outpacing ourselves, and we'll never be able to keep up because I can tell you now and for plenty of other people on this earth, social media just has everyone wrapped around its finger. And it takes conscious effort, consistent conscious effort to rid yourself of biases. And, and not that there's a problem with having biases because naturally we have those as humans, but the ridiculously specific biases, the, the 
strength that they have over us i mean social media just is unlike anything else i mean our our, our brains obviously are not able to handle knowing what is going on in the world everywhere and everything at once and it's kind of just an expected thing now that our brains yeah need to know like oh well there was a flood from raining in china that killed 40 people well yeah i know that now and how am i going to internalize that what am i going to think about that uh, meanwhile there's 200 other things that i'm keeping track of and it's just debilitating like it's it's tiring and it's tiresome and i have a feeling at some point i mean we're already seeing impacts of it um with increased suicide rates, with increased depression and anxiety rates, Jonathan Haidt goes deeper into that, uh, specifically into children um, with social media. But even for adults, just we cannot control what's been let out of, I guess, Pandora's box in some case. Um, and so, yeah, it, it ultimately shapes our perceptions. Our social media feeds through these algorithms that I mean, I guess the developers didn't really intend for. It has now created a chain effect of, I mean, misinformation, disinformation, along with requiring you to have opinions on everything and knowing everything at once. And I think, yeah, that shapes our perception so much. And so when you see other people, um, to get back to the original thing we were talking about, um, to see other people afraid to share their opinions yeah that's definitely their perception being manipulated by something right and that something is usually social media and it's easy to see how uh misinformation for example can can spread from social media and and i do want to get into that a little bit but i i, I want to pick your brain again uh, do you think this dawn of social media and artificial intelligence based news let's just to narrow it down uh, do you think that's propelling some sort of hypersensitivity in in gen z or do you think that's entirely unrelated because it seems to me that you couldn't argue otherwise that there is increased sensitivity whether it's on one hand you know a, a sensitivity to racial norms which might be a good kind of sensitivity to hold or on the other hand uh, an apparent sensitivity to to mental health, which leads to uh, more necessity for emotional support animals. And, and even with that, though, there's the caveat that is it actually emotional sensitivity or is it emotional instability? So I, I want to pick your uh, pick your mind here. Do you think that social media or, or any other means of um, spreading information, has led to this perception or I would argue reality that is some kind of particularly in youth hypersensitivity? So the short answer would be yes, very much yes. Uh, the long answer would be Jonathan Haidt again uh, gave a great talk on Gen Z and he uh, about an hour long if you I don't know if you've seen that um, but he highlights a lot of uh, it's like one to five you know problems affecting them what's going on 
but just to give a simple idea, yeah, no, they they are much more sensitive. And is it their faults? Not really. Uh, parents are to blame, that's for sure. Social media is to blame. But what's interesting is he opens up his talk by specifically discussing suicide rates um, and how they jumped the moment that social media boomed, suicide uh, rates like exploded and attempted suicides um, for both both boys and girls increase girls much more so though it's gotten really really bad and he does assume that part of that comes from the fact that how to cope with things now so coping with problems in your life for boys a lot of it is video games or other things for girls it's social appreciation right so they go to social media they post things they see other women or girls doing better looking better and that impacts them more um it could have biology also just in it somewhere but in the end they're struggling and that's scary and what he discusses yes is a lack of resilience um i want to know the specific term he uses it's um i think it's I forgot the term, but basically he discusses that we don't need to be like hard shelled as people, right? Gen Z doesn't need to just be hard as a rock because you can drop a rock and it may crack in two, right? But you need to be able to have grit to an extent. Uh, you need to have resilience to things. You need to build that up. And what he discusses is that that's kind of doing away with now or, or going away to an certain extent. Um, and he discusses how, yeah, a lot of parents raise their kids, helicoptering them, keeping them close, Gen Z especially. Um, but I, I noticed this, I guess I'm technically in Gen Z actually, because they, they change it around all the time. Sometimes it's from like 95 and up, other times it's 99 and up, I'm 99. So I guess I'm Gen Z now. I got my first phone in like fifth grade. Um, didn't get social media until high school though, but because um, my parents didn't let me. But um, honestly, I think I, I very much thank them for that. But um, yeah, so he, he discusses how parents are helicoptering their children more. They're, um, you know, like in the neighborhood, they're not allowing their kids to just go out and play as much anymore. My parents growing up, for example, they would go to the community pool. Uh, my mom was like six at the time. Her older brother was eight and her two younger sisters were five like no parents around they just went to the pool that was the thing they did right nowadays you would be scolded for that as a parent you need to keep your kids close protected uh they can't have any harm come to them um and so anyway what i'm getting to is that kids are not only being raised through their parents to get a lot of the stuff they want but also be shielded from the pains and having a uh, baby proofed, you know, everything uh, to then getting iPhones and getting social media and um, having their political philosophies at such young ages just thrust upon them having, uh, uh, you know, what you're supposed to look like, what you're supposed to say, what you're supposed to act like being thrust upon them as early as middle school. Um, and this is creating for really fragile children. And anti-fragile is the phrase he uses for um, 
children and how they should be raised. You know, it's the concept of like, prepare your child for the road, not the road for your child, right? It's the, if they fall and hit their head, have them be anti-fragile. They can bend and warp to fit their, uh, their problems in the future. So they hit their head, okay, you deal with it, they heal, whatever. If they're confronted in university with a problem or someone, you know, arguing with them about ideas, they don't shut down and they don't say, well, uh, uh, you're triggering me or you're, you're doing X, Y, and Z to me because ultimately you deal with your own emotions. You deal with being offended, right? And so being offended is a big thing now. And I think, yeah, that translates to fragility a lot and how Gen Z is fragile and you see a lot more trigger warnings. You see a lot more safe spaces. And Jonathan Haidt discusses how those are terrible for the children. He has the book called The Coddling of the American Mind, how good ideas but or good intentions but bad ideas have you know, shaped uh, future generations. And it, Gen Z is a perfect example. It's good intentions to keep your kids safe. It's good intentions to keep them away from pain in their lives. But to be anti-fragile, to be able to be prepared for the road in your life, you have to face things up front. And you can't have trigger warnings to protect you. You can't have ideas that you disagree with be shunned or thrown away. And I think a lot of them are growing up with that mentality and you add social media on that and it just makes it a lot worse. So honestly, yeah, I mean, every generation says the next one is the worst one ever, right? But this is, uh, it's not their fault, but I think they're going to have a lot of problems growing up when they, uh, they get to the real world and um, the world isn't bending to what they want. And you're right. Every generation does say the next has it has it the worst. But I, I think this is a constitutional change because even just on the spectrum of technology, each new technology makes you some percent faster at doing a job. Artificial intelligence makes somebody else some exponential percent better at psychologically manipulating you. It's a whole different dynamic that I think... It's not like there's going to be another revolution in the same way that artificial intelligence is a revolution. I think it's kind of a, we we figured it out, and now it's just going to increase in, in utility and or danger. Uh, but to your point, which uh, I agree with, there might be some core of parenting to do here. In the sense that, again, it's well-intentioned, as, as everything often is, because... You know, most people are well-intentioned. This idea that my life was worse than yours, therefore I'm going to give you everything. You know, I'm going to get you the newest technology, buy you the newest things, coddle you, uh, helicopter parent, to use the same words you are. That actually has negative psychological and sociological side effects that are really fascinating because if we realized this, that all we had to do was not quite coddle our kids so much uh, to have very little nuance, then we actually could raise a generation quite differently. So as much as it's damaging, it's also, like history tends to be, a great experiment. We are now learning that here are the effects of a 21st century reality and what they have on the human psyche. That's never happened before. We've never been at this point of... of 
stability and access to technology and in America access to um, increasing levels of equality and things like that. It's just a new reality that we don't know how to cope with and our parents thinking they're doing us a favor by giving us everything we want is actually in the long run appearing to be more damaging than it is productive. However, we are now running the experiment and the results are starting to come back. And in the same way cigarettes couldn't be proven to have long-term side effects until the long-term happened. Well, we are now a decade or two or, or, or even three, depending on your arguments, into these types of technologies. And now we can start to play these uh, play the end game, hopefully, of these these simulations that we're running on on the firmware of our society. Yeah, no, I there there's a interesting study that was done um, regarding allergies, peanut allergies, um, because what uh, some nutritionists or whoever studying allergies, you know, what some of them were saying when certain kids were developing allergies was okay avoid them right avoid peanuts at all costs that that became the norm and it kind of still is in some cases avoid them like the plague right but that's changed now because there was a study done i think it was actually in israel um this israeli research team um so i lived in israel for three years and they have this I forgot what it's called, but it's kind of this little children's snack that's peanut based and they're like peanut little puffs. And what they did was they had like X amount of number of uh, pregnant women and um, they accounted for all the variables they could, whatever. And they had 50% of the women eat that peanut snack while uh, um, pregnant. And then the other don't do anything right and what they found was that 11 percent of the babies born without the mother eating the peanut snacks um, developed a peanut allergy but only two percent who are eating them um, developed a peanut allergy so it's kind of just a light little example of like you know choosing to avoid things because of their perceived danger often leads to worse results in the end. You don't develop that uh, anti-fragile behavior or that anti-fragile framework for yourself. And um, nowadays, I I think they've revamped, scientists have revamped their um, points of view on that. And they are recommending to give like small amounts uh, to children or ingesting small amounts when you're uh, pregnant because yeah I mean it, it ultimately will reduce negative impacts that is really interesting because uh, earlier today I was actually having a conversation uh, with somebody about this exact topic uh, I, I was talking with someone with a young child and they had mentioned that they're not able to bring any kind of nuts to school you know no peanut butter sandwiches no um, almonds whatever they're, they couldn't bring almost any kind of nut to school and we're both fairly young, and I remember growing up, of course, you just brought a PB&J to lunch. So hearing this was totally new to me. So I wonder if either uh, just where I grew up was different than where, where I live now, or if the scientific consensus is, or, or at least uh, majority, is saying, oh, maybe this exposure is good. 
I wonder if school systems aren't necessarily following that. And if not, if there's any political reasons for that, because again, of a hypersensitivity, because sensitivity doesn't have to be physical. It could be like everything else we've mentioned, perceptual. And you don't have to follow the scientific consensus to perceive something that uh, that seems the best to you simply based on your intuition. And we know well that intuition in humans is not always reliable. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see that. Um, for example, like parents nowadays, if their kid does bad in a class or something, ratting out the teachers instead of the student, you know, that was a big thing. I used to be terrified when I did bad in a class because my parents never blamed the teachers. They always blamed me and it was my fault, I will say. But um, it's kind of like that concept. Yeah, like there are probably lawsuits that have happened at schools um, with unruly parents who their child, you know, they didn't have any policies or whatever and their child got sick or whatever. And so that, that could be a factor into why a lot of schools are still doing that um, because parents continue to want to coddle their child and make the 99.9% rest of students, you know, have to abide by that rule. Well, let's talk perception, uh, slightly different topic, COVID-19. The perception, which I know is listed as conspiracy theory to bring this up, but the perception is obviously that it came from a bat or something like that, and it spread to humans. Uh, but all of the evidence seems to say otherwise, but everyone's perception is completely denying this in the same way that studies were coming out about ivermectin and, and how it was beneficial to treat COVID. But uh, this COVID lab leak is even more um, more a, a visible, direct case of this. You can look at someone like uh, Brett Weinstein, who, who I know you're aware of, um, who was saying since something like, last June on Joe Rogan that the signs seem to indi indicate that uh, there is a potential for a, a lab leak from, from the uh, WIV, you know, the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That was, of course, nearby. Um, but before we get into any of the specifics uh, in terms of evidence, it, it, do you have any notions around this? Because even just me bringing this up might seem like conspiracy to you because to me, it actually seems very plausible that this came from a lab, but uh, feel free to give me your thoughts before I, you know, present any evidence or, or any have any banter. So, no. First of all, I, I don't believe this to be conspiracy at all. I think any any viewpoint on this matter in terms of where it came from is valid. I mean. I hate sometimes when people just chuck away a viewpoint and label it conspiracy just because it's different, you know, um, or it it's ascribed to a certain political affiliation, Trump administration saying this stuff, obviously everyone has a problem with that, but now they don't, I guess. Um, but I will be honest, at the start of the pandemic, I... Like, I was a little confused about this whole bat soup, whatever thing. Like, when I heard that, I was kind of like, really? Like, they've probably been doing that for a super long time, eating this stuff. Or other places in the world have probably been doing that. Like, to me, it was like, it probably would have happened by now. Um, so that was just my initial thought. I was like, lab leak, 
definitely plausible, but I guess everyone else is saying otherwise. So I guess it must be the bat soup or something, but now, no, I'm definitely more convinced. Again, I, I'm going to wait until fully all the details come out, which honestly may be never, not even in my lifetime, because China is going to cover it up as much as they can if it actually happened. But um, the way I see it, the circumstantial evidence for, around it is quite compelling. And I wouldn't be surprised that some U.S. officials who, um, I mean, it was U.S. funded, that uh, institute so they have their interests at stake they don't want to be discredited they don't want to be um, thrown under the bus and so i i could see a lot of people out there um trying to do whatever they could to save face um so it, it's it's not out of um it's not out of possibility in my opinion Sure. And to the point that it takes a long time, that's true. I'm not convinced the original SARS pandemic was officially declared, figured out for, you know, 10 or was it 15 years? I mean, some long period of time, not too long ago until we really declared it uh, resolved in some sense of where the origin exactly came from in detail. But the whole the whole experience has been very odd uh, i could go into specific evidence about you know the molecular genome suggesting editing or things like that uh, but i'm not going to pretend to be a, a virologist or a molecular biologist but what i can say just from my my personal experience uh, not to take anecdote over data of course but it was very strange the whole experience about how china uh, and this isn't to call out china in particular but just because the pandemic started here and how they responded they were very quickly i don't know if, if it was them or someone else had the ability to influence platforms to remove videos of people collapsing in in china uh, because i was someone who was gosh it must have been early january convinced that this was legit just based on the fact that if you have asymptomatic carry then temperature checks don't make any logical sense because you don't have symptoms. I mean, none of the approach made sense to me early on. And throw a Chinese New Year in there, that doesn't strike me as, as, as a good idea. So I was lucky enough to hear about this early and compelled enough to, to look at this pretty early on. And you could just watch YouTube videos be deleted after they're being uploaded. Just refresh the page and go to, uh, go to the newest uploads. That's weird. Seeing the World Health Organization be very, very, very late about calling this a a pandemic, a global pandemic, was weird. I mean, everything went from everything's fine to slightly less fine to mid-March, okay, March 12th or whatever that Monday was a couple weeks into March when we said, oh, actually, this is a huge problem and we, uh, we should all react now. Well, there goes being proactive. I mean, I don't know how many more temperature checks you can take. If someone doesn't have a temperature, you're not doing anything. You're just forcing people to wait in long lines. Sure as hell not social distancing. Not that that was something we did at that point. And, and all of it felt wrong. From China's reactions to YouTube. I mean, unless I was just delusional, watching videos be deleted after they were uploaded to just understanding... The R not early on suggested somewhere around three, and that has deviated very little since February of last year. So clearly that evidence was compelling enough. 
Uh, and combine that with just everyone's odd reaction, it, it does make you wonder if there's more going on, even without any of the genetic information and without any biological know-how whatsoever, it came across as suspicious, regardless of if you wanted to call it a lab leak or, or, or otherwise. No, for sure. Um, I think any, any sane person could see that it was a mess. And it, it's hard to say if that mess was uh, purposefully created. I, I would say it's not out of there. You know, I China has their hands in a lot of places. And so I wouldn't surprise if they were, I wouldn't be surprised if they were trying to save face through some dramatic um, attempts at social media or, or other uh, uh, popular figures or whatnot. But yeah, I definitely remember the science going back and forth. And while I understand like science takes time to uh, really hone in on the truth. So I'm not too concerned about the science being shaky at the beginning. Cause like, yeah, it was a little annoying with like, well, masks actually wait, no masks wait. Okay. Now masks. Um, okay. We're in the green zone. Actually now we're in the red zone and this is terrible and we're all going to die or, okay. Stay in your home. Uh, don't go anywhere ever. Um, and then also social distance if possible. But if you're outside, you also need to social distance, but there's been like very little, I, I think if, not one case ever found from being trans uh, uh, transferred outside. I, I, from what I know, I don't think there's any like uh, that I've seen. But either way, it's just like it was a mess. It was a complete mess. I think nobody was prepared. That's for sure. Nobody was prepared. And I mean, I guess we could go full conspiracy here and say it was set up by some rogue group i i wouldn't be too yes I, that wouldn't be too far-fetched if i don't know i guess if people are willing to suggest for example that the rich have their pockets in some areas and and whatnot and and do what they will the, the hyper rich it's not that far-fetched to suggest that a country would try and cover up what they did um and try and line as many pockets as they could or do certain things. It's really hard with lack of evidence in that regard, just because China has been so secretive, but to throw it out of the window with all of the weirdness that occurred, especially in the first few months, I don't think, I think people should look into it further and I think they should be more skeptical. Yeah. I'm not entirely convinced there's any, any mal doing just cause I, I don't have enough information to say. I can't really tell. And my intuition around temperature checks for asymptomatic viruses, which at that point we didn't know if it was two days asymptomatic or two weeks, right? We were very um, broad at that point. But any level of asymptomatic virus, well, that's just that's just not being an idiot. I mean, I don't know how else to say that politely. It's just, yeah, that's going to catch the people who have COVID, but it's not going to cure everyone's problems. It's not going to... What are we going to do? Quarantine everyone who has a vaccine that you can't detect? It doesn't, or has a virus you can't detect. It doesn't make any sense. So that your intuition can tell you, but I don't have any good intuition. I don't have any insider information around um, what the Wuhan Research uh, Institute was doing. Maybe it's just good intention research to 
try to fight viruses in the future, you know, uh, develop ways to, to fight these as we create them. But that's really problematic because there is an interesting uh, thing that occurred, gosh, it must have been just a couple years ago, where the this uh, terrible uh, uh, bird flu, the H5N1, that it doesn't spread very rapidly, but it's extremely deadly, something like 10% more deadly than Ebola. Uh, they were modifying it in the lab to see if we could make it spread significantly faster. We have successfully done that. Now, it's done, um, th this research obviously isn't done on people. It's done on a, a type of ferret, I can't remember exactly. A ferret with a similar uh, biological responses as humans for the best uh, research. But if this is something that breaks out of a lab, whether bad-intentioned or not, and it ends up being able to spread between humans the same way it does to ferrets, it's not an exaggeration to say society's gone. I mean, this is not conspiracy. That's just what happens. I mean, it's just a Spanish flu on steroids. Now, we made that, uh, and we're just hoping it doesn't get out. I'm sure they're not doing research on it anymore because that's dangerous, but that's been done. So it, it leads to this ethical question of, with this acceleration of biological advancement, uh, what happens to all the old stuff? Well, it goes to your colleges, and then it dwindles down to your high schools. I mean, it's not... It's not impossible to say that within the next hundred years conservatively you're going to have high school students doing genetic splicing-esque virology you know creating viruses in some way and maybe our high schools will all have really good quarantine but that doesn't seem likely you know these things aren't far-fetched the the fear of genetic creation by someone who is no longer one of the select few who has the ability to do this but in fact, someone who can, can, can modify genomes in a way with uh, exponentially advanced technology in, in several decades, that's a threat, I would argue, equally if not more severe than an accidental nuclear fallout of, of something that could have happened in the Cold War. Uh, but, but I wonder your thoughts. Do you, do you parallel my line of thinking that with technology advancing, there's a real threat that this will get into more and more people's hands, and then the odds of being a real psychopath or or having real malintent mal will only expand as the number of people with access expands. No, I I would say I generally agree. It's not something I think about consistently, just because it seems so far away. But I think the real sobering experience was this COVID nineteen pandemic. I mean, just to see, uh, I mean, if it did come out of a lab, just to see, first of all, how dangerous, I, I mean, even more dangerous than the creation of the atom bomb, you know, to be able to edit a certain virus to be so pervasive, so deadly to be able to, uh, to be transmissible so much to a certain extent that is terrifying alone and to see how unprepared we were i would say for future pandemics i would hope we're a little more prepared so i i, I feel okay in that regard i would hope that um i mean i don't know because i, I don't know the ultimate positive impacts of this virology and what this uh, gene editing really could do. I know it could help us understand viruses better, but it wouldn't be worth it in my opinion, especially to bring it to like the public level 
and allow people to mess with that stuff, that's dangerous stuff. And I think we've already seen that. And so because of that, I'm not too concerned that that would be a problem at least in the next few decades because people are gonna remember COVID-19 for a long time. And so I have a feeling they'll be extra careful there, at least I hope. But in regards to just gene editing in general, I mean, I think about like babies, you know, being able to edit children. And when you bring children into the picture, you have a market, a black market that could begin there always, which is scary. Um, yeah, it getting into the wrong hands, um, creating certain criminal underworlds. Like when you have anything like that, that becomes so advanced and people get their hands on it, people are going to find a way to line their pockets and whatever means. And that brings me to like deep fakes, for example, that's obviously a little bit of a different take from gene editing, but deep fakes, I cannot imagine how they'll be used for good compared to the bad, like being able to convincingly have someone say something that they didn't or say something that they didn't is terrifying. Um, let alone being able to control what certain traits a child has uh, coming into this world or really just any other traits. Yeah, that, that stuff is terrifying along with artificial intelligence. It's all, again, happening too fast to where I don't think we're going to be able to control the fallout effects of it. Just like um, with cybersecurity and how it's behind decades um, and how cyber crimes occur, hacking, other things that are just so hard to prevent against. Even governments struggle with that. And so it's, I mean, I want to be optimistic, but I just know that these things will fall into the wrong hands at some point. People, again, just don't have great intuition about this. I mean, we have great intuition about um, although this is going to bring up some stereotyping and prejudice conversations that we don't have to get into, but humans have great intuition around uh, if someone looks scary, let's just be really broad here. If someone looks like someone you shouldn't be hanging out with, our intuition is actually pretty good about that. That's something that comes naturally to us biologically. If there's uh, a predator of some kind, I don't just mean a human predator, but look historically, we're not going to hang out with that. If there's a, a bad apple, we're not going to want to be around them. These micro expressions humans have, um, other humans can detect them pretty well. So that's one thing our intuition's great at, but our intuition is terrible at understanding exponential growth. We're horrible at it. That's why we can't understand the, the growth of the universe, for example. It seems so unfathomable. We don't really understand that, even just looking at Mother Nature in particular, like a virus, COVID was about as easy of a world-ending pandemic as you're going to get. I mean, you could have had an R-naught similar to measles, which is, what, 15, something like that. The COVID R-naught's around three. So imagine something five times more spreadable than, than COVID. Or, I mean, even greater than that if we learn how to modify the genes appropriately enough. Uh, although... For the virus, it's not advantageous for your host to die, so making something infinitely spreadable and infinitely murderous isn't naturally advantageous, but it could happen insofar as artificially, right? You could create something that spreads like this in theory, and maybe it has a delayed reaction in your death, something asymptomatic, 
that's extremely advantageous for the virus. And then now you have a death rate like H5N1 and it spreads like measles. The human species, if that had happened during this COVID pandemic, we're done. I mean, structure, institutional structure, civil society, that doesn't exist anymore. There's no if buts about it. It's just not going to happen. Temperature checks isn't going to stop. Uh, isn't going to stop measles spreading Spanish flu. It's just not going to happen. Um, so I, I think on one perspective, we have to be sober about this reality of the natural world. But also, to your point, even our own technologies are going to start getting away from us if artificial uh, intelligence becomes sufficiently advanced. I mean, what's the expression that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? That's true, at least for the average person. And for those who subscribe to the idea that artificial intelligence could reach a threshold where it learns faster than than humans, then even the best humans, even the programmers, may not be able to understand what's going on. And combine that with the world of deep fakes where your your news media is controlled by some algorithm that you assume is reality, but for all we know, by that point, is just made up. It's not even real videos. Um, audio deep fakes are, are even easier to do, to use that term loosely. Um, we have a lot of shit coming for us naturally or otherwise and as much as i love human advancement and and as much as it would be a moral degradation of our of our innate duties as as humans to to stop doing these things because they have so many positive side effects positive benefits the negative externalities if not accounted for appropriately can be literally worldwide destruction at the edge on one edge case, and even in the short term, it's going to lead to COVID-19 pandemics, which may not have ended the world, but they sure as hell didn't progress it in any meaningful way. Well, yeah, I mean, I think about my own personal experience with COVID. I got it back in November 2020, and it's it's an interesting experience because I had a fairly mild case. It was nothing more than a I mean, a bad cold. I didn't have any nasal issues. It was mostly just a light sore throat, some fatigue and, and headache. And I mean, I lost my taste and smell for a while, but to, to, to really experience it, but then realize, okay, this is a virus that luckily most cases, especially in young people, don't result in the hospital, but it has done this much damage. It has caused this much upheaval. It has caused so much divisiveness. I mean, like perfect storm of just like the worst, I don't know, the worst events to transpire, new re-election in the U.S. and then a freaking pandemic, you know, and riots and just like, it was a, a bad time. But to think about a virus that was that, quote unquote tame in terms of its symptoms for most people right like my brother my brother and his wife got it and they were knocked out for a few weeks and they're young 25 and they it was a really bad flu for them and when people kind of talk about it as if oh, it's just a cold or just a flu but it's like imagine a quarter of the world's population in dramatic scenarios getting that 
that would bring the world to a standstill, you know, like we already knew that, you know, quote unquote, essential workers were needed. There are a lot of people who provide the backbone of our society where if it was a worse virus, if it was worse for young people, for example, for whatever reason, my gosh, like it would be, it, it would be destruction to some extent. We would go back decades, I'm sure. And we'd have to rebuild back up. Um, so it's almost that we're lucky that I guess it wasn't as bad, but that makes me think about the future for potential worse pandemics that could happen. And my gosh, the, the politicization of it and the, the um, disinformation and just like, it's like a pandemic wasn't enough to divide us. We then needed even more divisiveness to argue about semantics, basically. It's just like, I don't know. The world really, really, really needs something to unite it. And yeah, um, AI, deepfakes, media, pandemics, those are all just going to further divide it. And we know that now, you know, like we know that in the past decade, we've only further divided and we know that, but as you said, it's, it's the unknown. It's, it's scary to see where that will take us. Audio deep fakes are already getting very good. Like I have heard uh, people say whatever they want, type in anything random and it's Obama's voice and it is perfect. Sounds exactly like him. If you didn't know, you would have no idea that it's a deep fake. Um, but along with that, you know, I think about like Terminator and AI, and there have been so many, so many movies, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, just on AI and its ultimate destruction of humanity. I think Stephen Hawking uh, also discussed if AI were to progress to a certain point, it would end us. It's it's terrifying things to say the least they they didn't have to worry about this 50 years ago 100 years ago but i guess we all got to worry about it now because we all partake in it that's the thing it's not nuclear war anymore it's technology it's the technological age and what are our intelligence agencies doing like thinking about that what information do they have what technology do they have what what type of war will be fought, you know, if there isn't already one going on now? Right. Uh, AI approaching the singularity, I don't think it's going to look quite like the movies have depicted it, but insofar as a virus that's an order of magnitude worse, uh, the power grid is going to have a tough time staying up if no one's maintaining it. God forbid you need toilet paper. You're, you're going to be out of luck there. <laughs> so it's a really... It's a really tough spot. We are on a precipice uh, of a reality that if it was a worse virus, maybe New Zealand would survive because they handled COVID appropriately and absolutely wonderfully. Uh, and then everyone else would would well, die off, I guess. Their societal structures would collapse. And then artificial intelligence, we don't really know it, because that could look like something that's purely in cyberspace that could be something that uh something like a, a black mirror nanorobots that are so efficient and flexible they can make large structures out of their simplicity uh so we don't know really what that would look like 
And that's why we need these technological ethicists and, and these futurists and and even just creative minds theorizing and, and off these theories, policy um, you know advocates working with legislation to to find ways to prevent these in the future because there are there are ways to prevent things. You know you can prevent pandemics at least by having preparedness measures by having significantly better contact tracing. You can prevent AI by better understanding uh, computer systems, and I would argue better understanding the human mind. I think neuroscience will actually be a, a link not only to creating AI, but also to preventing it from being uh, something that does reach a singularity. So we have options here, but unregulated and and very much so requited uh, company progress, I don't think it's going to get us there. Capitalism, as much as I do love it, it's going to have a failing, and I think we are reaching that point of where these failings start to present themselves. Yeah, I would generally agree with that. Um, I think this loosely brings in the concept of of privacy to some extent because you you mentioned contact tracing so my parents are in korea right now and korea handled it quite well um but that was at a cost of privacy for the citizens they they would talk about how i mean what for for korea it's scary if they're getting 50 cases a day you know and if they have 3,000 cases oh my gosh it's the worst in the world right but they take it seriously. They really do. And they trace these people like crazy. They got access to their credit cards. They got access to whatever they needed. And that was provided to them. The government was allowed to do that. But because of that, they knew which nightclub that person went to, how many they went to. Um, they know which then restaurant they went to and they could contact everyone at that restaurant. Um, it's quite incredible what they were able to do with that technology, but also with uh, t that lack of privacy, which we, we don't have here in the United States, which is a big tenet of um, one of our foundational values, which is the right to privacy, you know, and the, the right to that freedom and that ability um, to not have the government all up in your face. But I think we could both agree that in a pandemic scenario, privacy is probably the least of your concerns to some extent others would argue differently but it seems that the countries that threw away their privacy for some time were able to contain it a little better um but yeah ultimately um i think privacy is just another big issue there, there's so many issues regarding technology or other things where privacy is going to be another one for sure I'm a pretty large advocate of privacy, actually, and, and most Americans, I'm sure, would all be opposed to something like a social credit score. You know, the Black Mirror episodes uh, we air certainly don't do China any favors, but I will say I don't have a perfect solution because as much as contact tracing is very beneficial in a pandemic, of course it's needed, especially if it's a pandemic that's not quite as mild as this. I know to call this mild seems insensitive, but from a uh, vir uh, viral perspective, it's a mild virus compared to others we've seen. Um, every time the 
the default Apple iPhone contact tracing option popped up, kind of like an iOS update, I would decline it just out of principle. But I know damn well anyone who's worried about being traced because of a, a microchip in their vaccine because they're a QAnon supporter doesn't have a damn clue about how much their iPhone tracks them, how much Google knows where you are, where you are at all times. I mean, we have so much more privacy than a lot of people, yet we have so much less than we think we do, where it actually is a conversation worth having, not just around pandemics, because this might be an edge case where uh, if you get everyone on board, the, the moral repercussions of, of not doing so are, are too high to you know, um, for anyone to disagree. But outside of v global pandemics, there are real conversations to be had because I'm sure many preventative measures rely on data. The world runs on data. And the more we learn about human psychology, there is a level of understanding it as a physiological source of data. That's what it is. So we have to be careful. I I share your appreciation for being careful insofar as privacy is concerned. And I also share your appreciation for the fact that in the same way that the U.S. government uh, uh, can declare um, martial law, well, we, we could have something similar happen if we needed to. That's That's why we have a government. They are supposed to do what's in our best interest, presuming the elections are fair. Um, so, yeah, it is a really dangerous path forward to not have privacy, I, I agree. But at the same time, there are sometimes moral implications that you simply cannot, you cannot ignore. And to pretend that you're the moral uh, superiority, uh, you know, on this side of the argument, while you're letting your neighbor's grandma die because because you brought her mail in yesterday without asking and now she got COVID and well, she passed away. That's pretty irresponsible. Yeah, no, this, this whole concept of privacy um, brings me to the idea of Snowden, for example, you know, pretty or fairly controversial matter, but I, I would say less controversial than some think in the sense that it's, it's pretty black and white, I guess, you know, you have older generations, at least when I talk to my parents, he's a traitor, 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 you know, like, he's just the worst. And then younger generations tend to support his actions more. But that's the question is like, are we really surprised to find out what he told us, you know, or what he showed? I mean, we, we willingly give up our privacy, knowingly, when we buy an iPhone, you know, or when we get a Mac or when we, I don't know, get really anything from any company, big conglomerate. It's not always the government. Um, but either way, it's still quite scary to know that the government was um, spying on its own people for national security um, cases but yeah it just begs the question of yeah i mean how how private are our lives and do we care that's the big question too a lot of people will kind of just say eh, whatever you know i don't really care if they know that i went to this one restaurant or i talked to my aunt this day or whatever because well it keeps me safe 
Um, but for other people, it's a bigger problem. Um, personally, yeah, I, I'm pretty divided on that. But um, but I don't even know where Snowden's at now. He's in Russia. Yes, he's in Russia. Yeah, so I'm assuming he's not allowed to come back or else he would probably face execution. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it just begs that question of how how much are we willing to give because we assume that the government has our best intentions and in the case of covid which is a fringe case for sure um but that's also another question that needs to be asked is just i mean from from what we saw it seems like it was also divided some americans were willing to avoid that grandma right next to them right and others didn't really care and i don't know that's tough I'd argue we have a fairly simple solution. I don't know in practice how to implement it, but the research supports that human psychology can be manipulated very easily by opt-ins versus opt-outs. There was a study done. I'm going to forget the specifics now, but uh, to give you the general idea that uh, certain countries have instituted opt-out policies in their um, uh, organ donor cards and whereas other countries have opt-ins and the differences between them just because there's an energy cost of doing what's not the default was astounding don't quote these numbers but it was something like 35 percent of people in countries that had to opt into being organ donor are organ donors and something like 80 percent of people who had to opt out remained organ donors because it was the default. Again, don't quote those exact numbers. And that is such an interesting thing that we can use to our advantage. If we have uh, systems in place that work in our favor, let's say it's an opt-in to giving away our data, like Twitter, let's say it's $5 a month, but if we opt-in to have it for free, then we are knowingly opting in to giving away our information for this for this free experience. And I have a suspicion that everyone would just opt in knowingly. Uh, they would say, I like the free experience. I don't care who has my data. But then, then we don't have to have a debate anymore. Then there's no more, but I didn't know, or the terms of service was too long. You can either pay for a service or opt into the free version, and then it will you will become the service and the uh, consumer will become some other third-party company. And then you have at least opted in. It could be plain English, bold letters on a front-facing GUI that's user-friendly. It could be $5 a month or we sell your data. It would be easy to implement that. It would be easy to regulate that. And now once you've already opted in, if you feel like you're being manipulated, well, you have less ground to stand on and that gets more ethically fishy or ethically um, challenging but I, I wrote an essay on this not too long ago because I firmly believe that's an easy solution uh, albeit simple solution that would at least save us from acting as if we don't know what's happening because then there's no more cognitive dissonance at that point it's only Orwellian doublethink you know, you're aware but you choose to deny your awareness and that you lose the moral argument at that point. And we no longer need to have this conversation in the same way. Yeah. Um, like you said, it could get to some pretty ridiculous places. I mean, I, I wouldn't 
say it would get as fictional as 1984 per se. Um, but I, I think I generally agree with that proposition just because yeah it's true i mean think subconsciously or even just consciously most people realize that their phone's tracking them they just don't care they they really don't care that much um unless it starts to get a little too much like i, I wouldn't care what twitter is I, I don't even know what data twitter would be sending around i guess from my tweets or maybe my likes or my profile but it's not like Twitter will know exactly where I am, like, I don't know, in one specific place. It could if I maybe open it up in the place. But like if I so, for example, I think Snapchat, like when you open the app and you have your there's a little snap map on it, it basically shows your entire location to everybody who is uh opting in to see it, I guess. But you can opt out of that. You can turn your map off and you can turn off the location services or whatever. So I have done that because I'm like, look, I, I don't want to open it up somewhere and somebody be able to pinpoint my exact location. Um, but other services that come with Facebook or Instagram or whatever, yeah, you kind of, everybody kind of just, yeah, accepts it. Um, because it is the default. It's just what you do. And yeah, nobody's going to read those terms of service. Nobody's going to read any of that. It's, it's, I don't know if that was purposefully created to be that long so that people just, you know, don't even care for it. But um, yeah, looking at myself, I, I would definitely opt in to something that would just be the default because it'd be simpler. Um, I think when I got my driver's license, I, it was an opt-in thing. And I remember just when I was getting it, they're like, quick question. Yeah. Do you want to opt in or whatever? And because it was like, just easy, it was like a yes or no thing. I was just like, yeah, sure. Why not? Right. Um, but had I actually thought about it, I don't know, my mind may have changed, but I, I generally would want to be an organ donor. But um, yeah, so that, that brings up some interesting, interesting ideas. Yeah. It really just, uh, we just have to understand if we're all not caring, which I agree, maybe the majority of what's happening, we just don't care. Um, or if it's a misunderstanding of technology. But if we can understand technology, which is a very loose way to say a lot of things, like understanding that your photos you take are probably going to have GPS coordinates in them in the EXIF file format. You can extract these online if you're ever, if you're ever curious and haven't tried this. Um, it's pretty fun, actually. Because images have location data, generally speaking. Uh, people don't know that. So you could say, oh, no one knows where I am. But someone just has to you know, take the, uh, let's say your file store online somewhere. Take the HTTP you know, file and upload it to a, an EXIF extractor. And then you can see the GPS coordinates. That's just in your photos. So part of me wants to think it's a, it's a misunderstanding of technology. But I think to your point, mostly it's that people don't actually care. Uh, but I just want to hit home that I think we all need to be on the same page. And then, okay, if everyone truly doesn't care, then we just need to stop complaining about the issue. And I, I don't think that's the answer because I'm going to keep complaining about the issue. But if the majority wants to be tyrannical in some sense, fine. As long as we understand what the implications are. That's how democracy works is that. We know the implications in theory, 
and then if we all decide it's okay then that's fine we don't have to complain anymore yeah true now i didn't actually know that they did have location um that came with those photos i'd have to try that at one point but another part of me is like yeah would i even care now that i know that do i even really care am i gonna believe that someone like i think to your point of people not really understanding the technology i don't even think i would understand what people would do with that data like what would the point even be of knowing two years ago i took a photo right here you know i, I think it's also that concept of like well that data is kind of meaningless anyway, according to myself, but someone else could find use of it. But I think it's, yeah, unless it like directly impacts you, I think it has to do with like direct impact. And if it doesn't really impact you that much, the the signing away your privacy doesn't really impact you, then yeah, people may not bother with it. Right, and it's usually a positive impact to to the general consumer. I mean, even if you go to the most extreme cases of, uh, your your computer microphone hears you say a certain buzzword and then that becomes your your side ad on Amazon.com now. I mean, that happens, and that's reality. Amazon Echo is always listening. It has to to function properly. So these things happen, but as a result, to the end user, it's only beneficial things. You get ads that are tailored to you. You get campaigns that you're more interested in. You get better suited music playlist so all of these things actually benefit the consumer yes could that data be abused I, i'm a firm believer in that being someone who's interested in data and and done uh, a little bit in computer science and, and things like that uh, but to the consumer it's not going to bother them if anything it makes their life easier so you really have to have a strong ethical argument against it and to talk in circles i'm sure the average person doesn't care that much so as long as you know, we're not breaking antitrust laws uh, business-wise. Most people probably don't actually care. Yeah, I think I think I would honestly generally agree with that. I don't have too much expertise in this subject, but yeah, I mean, as long as it's benefiting someone to some extent, it would help. Like I, my trip I went on for the last few days was to Disneyland. It's been a while since I've been there. And I remember like leading up to it, I mentioned that probably around my phone or on the phone with someone or something. And immediately, yeah, I was getting ads for that. I have TikTok and I was getting TikToks about what foods should you try there and all those things, right? And like, that's generally helpful, but deep down, it's a little creepy that, you know, it was immediately ready to just like that, um, show me stuff that I want to see. And I, I, I could see that getting to a point like with politics, obviously it's dangerous because you're just fed the same crap over and over um, that ultimately could radicalize you even more. Well, I'll tell you what, Mateo, uh, this has been an awesome conversation and there is more on the docket for us to talk about. If we stop talking now, then uh, there's an excuse for us to come back and chat again in the near future which I greatly look forward to doing. So uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, up to this point, the longest podcast uh, I've recorded. And I look forward to having another in-depth podcast like this uh, in the near future. Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's been super fun.